We are back with Coffee with the John Season 3, Episode 1, and it's a special one. We are bringing on... <laughs> we have brought on a special guest. And like I said before, we're going to be doing this uh, more and more, bringing on different people, get different points of view, so you're not always uh, listening to our one point of view. Um, and in this That's case, the right one, though. it's always the right one, but you know, hey... People could be wrong sometimes. By people, I mean them, not us. Um, that being said, it's a great pleasure to introduce a good friend of ours, a local investor. Um, used to be a local investor. And he moved out, no, of, state. out of state. investor. And uh, Mr. Andrew Middlestat, welcome to the show. Good morning, gentlemen. It's a pleasure to be here with you. It's great having you on. So Andrew Middlestat has been working with us for how long now? A couple like of years. 2017, now. I bought our first deal from you guys as a wholesale oh, that's right yep wow that's when you got that that first random call. i remember too i was driving through a neighborhood and uh the windows down doing dress i'm driving for dollars and I just get this random calls like yeah i'm just kind of calling around different websites and stuff and i saw you guys were wholesalers so i'm just trying to see what's up well i remember i called i was following john barbera on bigger pockets and uh i called the number and john Barr answered i'm like well i want to talk to john barbera he's like <laughs> well you can talk to me too i'm like no i want to talk to john barbera well, i don't know who you <laughs> are special Screw too this guy. So. But yeah, so I, in this whole time, it, one of the things that um, I've always admired about you is I always hear so many people say, you know, you got to quit your job in order to be in real estate. You got to go all in on real estate. And you are a full-time pilot. And so is your wife. Right. And you guys have been killing it in real estate. You know, you've been doing very well. And I use you guys as a huge example. It's like, Especially when I meet people that they, it's, and I hear this all the time, yay, I'm quitting my W-2, ha, and everybody's like, oh my God, congratulations. And I'm like, why? Mm. Why would you, do, what, what's your goal in real estate? Well, I figured, you know, at first I'll probably, you know, wholesale a few properties, try to get some cash and maybe flip a few so then I can eventually buy some rentals. You can cut that whole curve if you just keep your W-2. So, with you, what was it that made you not quit your job to go full-time for real estate? Certainly. I, I most wholeheartedly agree. Uh, it's for a couple of reasons. First of all, I guess I'm one of the few that actually enjoys my W-2 job. I like going to work <laughs> and uh, flying airplanes. But second of all, and probably more importantly, uh, having that W-2 income is such a huge asset. It makes purchasing and refinancing property so easy. And uh, when you go to a lender and you can, you know, put a good W-2 slip in front of them from the year prior, they're just, they're happy to do business with you and give you good rates. And uh, it, it just makes the whole enterprise so much easier to be able to do it that way. So, uh, and one thing that, that I think people forget is we live in such a black and white world mm -hmm. that people say, I need to be a full-time investor or I need to be a full-time W-2 employee. Like there is... You can meet in the middle and have a holistic approach yeah. Yeah. where one kind of blends into the other. You know, it's like when I'm flying airplanes, I'm out flying airplanes. But when I'm investing in real estate, I'm investing in real estate. And uh, they're just, they're, they're one and the same. They kind of, they, they bend and they flow nicely and they, um, you know, they, they, they and, both prop each other up. And can you give like just a brief summary of your real estate experience since you bought your first property, what have you done in real estate since then? Yeah, so uh, we bought our first rental property back in 2013. It was a single family house down in uh, Rainbow Hills in Southwest San Antonio. Since then, we've purchased and had an ownership interest in somewhere around 
30 to 35 properties. Uh, we've had single family rentals, both long-term and short-term more recently. We've done uh, residential assisted living facilities, um, invest in apartment syndications, land deals, both commercial and uh, commercial and residential. And also now we're getting into some some new build stuff for uh, for short term rentals. So it's uh, so everything. <laughs> it's, it's been quite a bit, but we, we do because we don't rely on the income per se. Right. We just we do what we enjoy. Like we wouldn't mm -hmm. be investing in real estate if we didn't enjoy doing it. So we just kind of follow the path of what we enjoy doing. What's what produces financially? What produces in terms of rewards on? you know, pride and challenge. And, and we can really follow that because we have the backstop of a W-2 job. And do you think an advantage to having a good W-2 job and enjoying real estate for what it is allows you to take the time to really dig deep into what you're about to invest in, be more cautious, be more educated versus somebody that quit their job. They're having to wholesale. They're having to do all this where you don't really, most wholesalers don't take a lot of time to learn different strategies because they got to pay the bills. They got to survive where you, your bills are taken care of. Do you spend more time educating yourself about these opportunities? Yeah, of course. It's much less stressful. It, yeah. makes it, it makes it more fun when you have the time and the knowledge and the ability to jump mm -hmm. into these things without having to, like you're not forced to produce to put bread on the family's table. Well, I think a lot of the, one of the biggest things for your guys' selves as well, and we would tell people this all the time, it's like, Oh, but I have to go all in in real estate because I need to make the income. There's higher income there. Then I can put it back into real estate. It's like, well, no, you can have a W-2 live below your means and actually save money. And so you can have that down payment to buy your first rental property, buy two, buy three. Everyone's just like, they're just so impatient. And where it's like real estate is a very slow game at first, but then it can really build on itself. And like that compounding interest kind of thing. It's like once you get one, two, three, four, it takes a while for that stuff to go. Mm -hmm. Once you get four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten of them, it's like now this cash is really starting to come in. You can really start doing a lot of things, start refinancing some cash out where like everyone just they're just too impatient. Well, we um, started what uh, two years ago, maybe with like one rental, two rentals. And now we're up to 14. As of yesterday, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, it's something that like the first year or two, like we didn't have that many. What do we have? Like three one. or four? Yeah. One. That, and then like yeah. that, that was like probably six months. And then uh, and then those like we, we found we got pretty lucky. because We found several sellers that had multiple properties that wanted to sell them all. So that mm -hmm. was a benefit. I mean, they, I think seven of them came via that route of uh, properties like that. So that was a benefit that really kind of pushed it up. Um but yeah, it's just one of those things that it just takes a minute to get started. Yeah, I guess that, that that's the the power of velocity investing as well is, you know, we bought our first one in 2013 and we didn't buy our second one until, well, from you guys in 2017. Huh. And then two turned into four, turned into 10, turned into you know, multiple dozens pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So what questions did you have? Um. Well, I mean, I guess, so what drove you into getting into real estate? Like what, in 2013, like what was it like for andrew and your wife to be like you know what we're gonna go into real estate like what took you there because i know what took me there is just like i was always in construction always in housing and stuff like that it's like hey money can be made i found bigger pockets found rich dad poor dad and then it's like here we are eight years later but uh what was it for you that how'd you guys get into it yeah so i guess at the time we were well, real estate's very expensive to get an education in. So at the, at, at the time, at the very beginning of our careers, it was motivated financially to be able to get in, pick up some houses, either rent them or, or flip them and be able to pay off our student loans. And that's why there was that big gap from 2013 to 2017, because we went in it 
financially motivated and knew that we wanted a challenge outside of flying airplanes. We did, we knew that in the future we'd have decent amount of time off to be able to do it. Uh, and that was the only house that we had ever lost money on because we went into it with the wrong intention. I was just going to ask, did you, did you win money? Did you make money? So we, money we, we lost about 500 bucks when it was all said and done. So <laughs> it wasn't financially devastating by any stretch, but uh, it allowed us to sit back and regroup emotionally. It was frustrating. Like, it was, <laughs> I was like, I've, emotionally, that's where that one hurts. I've, I've lost sleep exactly two nights over real estate investing, and they were both over that house back then. <laughs> so we, we sold it, regrouped, and just redefined why do we want to do this. And it was it was obviously financially motivated, but it was for the challenge. It was for the, the social aspect. Uh, it so was, was it that made it go bad? We just did everything wrong. Um, I got an inspection report and it turns out that the roof was put on completely incorrectly and I didn't read it properly. So when we went to go sell it, the, the, the buyer wanted like a huge discount because he had to put a new roof on it. Uh, we didn't put in a good heating system. And that winter we had some nights that were like 21, 22 degrees or something something similar nice. and our tenants called just freaking out and we had to drop a bunch of money to try to keep them warm which was the right thing to you know it was yeah. right for them to ask and it was wrong for mm. us to to remodel incorrectly so um yeah i guess to answer your question it's just it's it's challenging it's thought-provoking it's mentally stimulating and it's also um financially incentivized so that you can go out in the world and do some good and help your family and help others all right so fast forwarding uh just wanted to get to pretty much what we talk about on the show is the current state of the economy, you know, the news, trending, what what's happening, all the all the policies that are being brought in. And one of the biggest things that affected this uh, economy was the pandemic and the bailouts. So you are in the airline industry, one of the industries that were bailed out, you know, by far the most. They were very scared of the airline industry crashing. How was that experience for you when that first happened? Um, as an industry, it was terrifying. Uh, mm -hmm. We thought we had the largest displacement. The airline that I worked for is one of the largest in the world. Uh, we had the largest displacement in the airline's nearly 100-year history. Uh, we were expecting up to a third of the pilot ranks to be on the streets furloughed. Um, along with tens of thousands of flights. That's how it happened previously, things. right? Like in the past, like 08, 2000, like they just cut people and it just started cutting. That was costs. the thing. It's like in like your industry, it's like like you can use it anywhere else. Like you fly massive jets, planes through the air. Like yeah. where where if they're all not hiring, where do you transfer that skill set? Yeah. So Home Depot. <laughs> well, that's what I said. A lot of guys yeah. like they'd be car sales, we use car salesmen, but an airline pilot when they got laid off, it's like Sometimes you just do what you have to do would, you know, when you have to put food on the family for your table. Fortunately, a lot of our coworkers are in the military, so they could go back to either reserves or active duty. But there are quite a few people that are purely civilians that needed something else to do. And this is partially why we got into real estate investing as well as, you know, it is a risk mitigation technique for a highly cyclical industry is part yeah. of the reason we got into it as well. So it was from an industry, it was very scary. The airlines were, you know, in 2019, we were making billions of dollars and getting profit sharing checks. And then all of a sudden, six short months later, we're all going to be on the streets and the airlines are losing billions of dollars. And it was, it was terrifying. Uh, for us personally, we saw it as an opportunity to maybe focus on the real estate investing more. And turns out that we, we certainly learned some new skills, got into the short-term rental game and uh, picked up some more long-term rentals with you guys and could really focus on that stuff. But uh, overall, I guess when the pandemic first hit, it was uh, it was very unnerving. 
<laughs> I can imagine, especially just saying like, and another thing that I always kind of talk about, and then I have to be like, we've done successfully. He's like, for some people, they all want to go all in on one strategy of real estate. Like, I'm only doing short term rentals. Well, if the pandemic had gone the other way, when you first got into it, you're just like, nobody's traveling, nobody's going to Airbnbs, nobody wants to have that. Like, oh, somebody was just in here last night that I could possibly get sick from. And like, if this was a serious thing, like you're kind of really screwed if you're all short-term rental. And that's where it's like building a, a foundation of like, hey, you got traditional single family residential houses that are like kind of like the backbone of a portfolio. And then you can kind of move into the other things. I mean, what are your kind of thoughts on that? Because uh, you've done um, short-term rentals, you've done assisted living, you know people that have done like the rent by the room thing. Um, I mean, what do you really kind of think, and uh, John, for yourself as uh, – how does that play if like this would have gone the other direction, like having a good portfolio of properties first before just trying to jump into things that boost cash flow, but kind of at a riskier play? Yeah, like you alluded to, the, the long-term rentals are, I almost look at them as like the bond of any portfolio, right? Like they should be stable. Even during 2008, rents rose shallowly in, in San Antonio. So obviously a global pandemic is not something anybody saw coming. We didn't know how to mitigate against that. But if you have good risk mitigation techniques uh, in action, that, that's all that you can do. And it turned out that it worked, it worked out well for all of our houses. I know some people had issues with tenants not paying. But um, it seems like to, to have a good backbone of monthly income from long-term rentals was a huge benefit. But then also, it seems like if one part of the industry gets hit, maybe one doesn't get hit quite as much. So having different exposure to different levels <laughs> of real estate in apartments, in land, in long-term rentals, short-term rentals. If you if you have your hands on a little bit of everything, the thought is at least that one of those will be successful and will get you through. Well, I mean, there, diversification is always huge. We always talk about it. And especially within real estate, you should diversify. I mean, even just if you were to just do a buy and hold portfolio, no short-term rentals, nothing like that, I still think that you should diversify within that. You should have a balanced portfolio of properties that – have a constant appreciation as well as decent cash flow, then you should have another one that's probably a lot more appreciation, not so much cash flow, and another one that's a lot more cash flow and not so much appreciation, right? So then you kind of start hedging your own investment portfolio with, you know, cash flow appreciation. So whichever way the market goes, you're kind of protected in either direction. Um, one thing that I've been thinking about lately a lot is in this market, there's a lot of people that look like geniuses, right? Because the market is making people look very, very smart. And, you know, oh, I'm flipping all of these houses. I'm wholesaling 35 houses a year, 50 houses a year. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm doing this. I'm doing, I'm looking at my Airbnbs. And it's like the market is making you look very, very smart. But your fundamentals and your foundation is not existing. And that's one of the things when I started in real estate, I started learning from Rich Dad Poor Dad, right? And Robert Kiyosaki is just so big on cash flow, so big on, you know, passive, being a, you know, a business owner, an investor, not an employee or self-employed. And like he's so big on these things that it I read all his books and it kind of like ingrained in me. And I study a lot of history, especially economic history. And when I look at all those things, that's why we've been so hesitant to get into Airbnbs. Because when we look at them, we're like, Airbnbs are still, especially at the time, they're very speculative, you know? And there are people buying more than what the house was worth, including repairs. It wouldn't have rented to cover their mortgage, but they're like, yeah, but I'll kill it with Airbnb. And I'm like, 
And if you don't, they didn't have an answer. They didn't know what the fuck else they were going to do. They had no reserves. They had no backups. They had nothing. And I was like, that's the problem that I see. It's like you get to into the speculative investing, all these things. And right now, because of the market, everybody looks like a genius. Well, that's what I was saying. Like the fact that it's like that's their only one and only strategy. Yeah. And like these things do not convert to long-term rental properties, even cover the debt services they've got. It's like, yeah. But if you don't like you don't have that good portfolio of cash flow to support those months. Like, Hey, can you go three months without getting income off that one property? And like, we just had a rental property turned over and we had to do some renovations to it. Yeah. Our cash flow dropped by that amount of rent, but it's like, we still had positive cash flow across the entire portfolio. So that definitely helps. We're like, yeah, those short-term rentals, especially you get like these areas where you see, um, a lot of that stuff's really kind of shaken out now with all the permits uh, that have kind of gone by a lot of cities and stuff like that. But yeah, when they were like just buying everything and also like, oh, you now have to have this permit to be able to run and operate a short-term rental property. Everyone's just like, whoa, what the hell? Like I got seven of them on this street. And they're like, well, you can only have one. Like, what are you going to do at that point? So you got to sell the property. And if that, what we kind of saw is like if all those properties hit the market at one time, it could drive prices down. And you could really have an well, issue. What I think also, sorry, but what I think is, is crazy too and dangerous from people right now is that what I when I say these points to some uh, Airbnb investors and stuff like that, they're like, yeah, but who could have seen this coming? I'm like, exactly. That is the point why you set up a strong foundation because you just don't know what the future brings. Nobody supposedly could have seen this happen. Right. Nobody knew that it was and even nobody knew it was going to happen the way it did. When it first, the pandemic first hit, we had just bought a house that was like tight margin uh, margins of profit. And the everything shuts down literally like the, the day, day we after. close. The day yeah, after like, we yeah, closed, like everything. Like, I, I remember calling him. I'm like, do we close out it yet? He was like, yeah. yeah. I'm like, oh, shit. Because <laughs> like, yeah, just so the documents. Yeah. yeah bit like, ago, it's like, it's like complete shutdown. Nobody leaves their homes. Nobody. We're like. Is the real estate market going to tank? You know, what the hell is going to happen? We never expected that it was going to skyrocket because people were going to flee from like apartments, go into bigger homes and do all this. Like, we didn't know that. And it's just one of those things that's like, that's the point. So, and also going back, I guess, kind of a, a con contrarian view to what you guys are talking about is we live in a cash is trash type world right now. Mm -hmm. I always like sitting on at least six months of reserves, if not more, yeah, in case agreed. something were to happen. Like I'll rest my head easy at night knowing that nothing is going to happen to the nest egg. And um, so we've been comfortable in a W-2 job, uh, my wife and I, for a decade now. And when we, we've always built the real estate portfolio as a hedge to uh, an airline downturn. And when we not knowing that we would completely lose our jobs. So relying upon the long-term going from no, from good W2 to no W2 to relying on the, the long-term rentals, it wasn't enough. We realized that we actually had a lot of equity in properties, but they weren't producing a lot of cash flow. So on mm. the flip side to what you're saying, we realize, wow, we really need to get some cash flow built up quickly. Right. Like we were doing it as a long-term wealth generation mm -hmm. technique, not so much to live off the money. Okay, and that's also the problem. Like the time you need that equity, you lose your job. Ain't nobody giving you yeah, a yeah, yeah, like, yeah, hey, yeah, I, yeah. Get, exactly. I get you got cash flow and stuff like that, and a bunch of equity, but so, we don't care. So although I do agree with with what you were saying, yeah. from the flip side, like a real, war, real world case study, we needed to go from good income to no income to all of a sudden generating larger yes. amounts of cash flow off these properties, which is kind of what forced us into the short-term rental game. It was kind of by accident. Yeah. We were going to go travel for a while. 
and uh, we rented out our house in Colorado on Airbnb, and it rented it rented well, and we turned our only liability into an asset, and that asset was producing good cash flow, which really showed us how powerful it's the short term like rental game can be. Like, it was well, by accident. It, see what happens. It, but at the same point in time, we didn't overpay for the house specifically for short term rental income either. Yeah. Um, so there, there needs to be a little bit of hedge against the, uh, you know, overpaying. So it was one of these, you used, the, you used Airbnb like it was supposed to be used. I bought a homestead and then I rented it out on for short-term periods. <laughs> well, and, and, and going back to what I was saying is uh, having a diversified portfolio, it's like you should have, I think your base should be of properties that have potential for appreciation and good cash flow. And then go to purely cash flow properties and go to purely appreciation properties to really hedge yourself. Like if one takes a hit, you know your cash flow is going to be taken care of. It's yeah. going to be good. It's in, in a good, secure area. You know that that cash flow is always going to be coming in. Yes, you can't sell these, but you're not struggling. You're not hurting for it. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like if it, uh, for, for our sake and stuff like that, so we have a lot of short-term, or not short-term rentals, but like traditional rental properties, Boosted by cash flow from short-term rentals, but if something were to happen to that short-term rental, we needed to rent it out. It probably wouldn't rent it for what the debt service is going to be, but it will be at a negative hundred bucks, two hundred bucks. But from the positive cash flow of everything else, it right. can't sustain that. So you're not like, I need to liquidate everything, like you see a lot of people to do. I mean, at that point, yeah, I, I'd look at it as you're playing kind of like the stock market. You just you're so over leveraged, and then you have to sell everything, all your winners, to cover your losses. Or like, well, if you built a, a property where it's like, hey, your your foundation sustains the more speculative, higher generating right. cash flow, higher risk stuff to where if it goes wrong, you can turn it into something else. And then you have positive cash flow while you wait a year or two for certain areas to come back. So here, here's something else that I've been seeing with uh, speculation is I've been seeing a lot of investors or potential real estate investors, wannabe real estate investors, all of a sudden go head first for cryptocurrency and Bitcoin and all these things, right? And going back to your point, you say, you know, I want to have at least six months of reserves. I want to do like, that's how I look at it too. To me, I'm like, if you, you got to set your foundation first before you start speculating on all this, because everybody wants to get rich on crypto, on crypto and Bitcoin and all this. And I'm like, but you have no foundation. Your business is not even set up and running effectively. Like if you don't, if you don't keep marketing, you're out of business. If you don't keep wholesaling yourself, you're out of business. Like you have no business. You understand? Like you, you could be out of business in two seconds, and you're diverting your attention and capital to something completely different from what you're doing. Where I'm like, why aren't people like focus until you have a foundation? Once you have a foundation, then you can speculate, right? I mean, what is your thought with kind of just jump in too quickly into other things. No, I, I totally agree with that because if you, once you have that foundation you're speaking of, once you have cash flow and you have equity and you have good income potentially coming in from a different job or wherever that may be, that's when you can afford to take those riskier bets, whatever, you know, whatever risky is to you. Right. Um, once you can afford to lose the money and although it will be upsetting, it's not going to affect your lifestyle at all that's when you can afford and that's only when you can afford to take those well, I think the, the american society kind of really pushes people to like 
get out on. I mean, we're a consumer society or a consumer nation. And it's like stretch for this thing. You can see on, and I think social media doesn't help with that at all. You see everyone else living these lifestyles. Like, well, I want that, but I need to make a bunch of money to do it. And this slow W two thing just takes too long. So I'm gonna jump into wholesaling. I'm gonna jump into flipping. I'm gonna jump into crypto. I'm gonna jump into whatever it may be at the time. Uh, back in like the what was the 1600s, the tulips uh, to try to get rich too. I mean, society's done it like always. That that I think that's like the downfall of like our race is that the greed that can really and not have the discipline to look at it from a long-term perspective like hey six months first and then i will move into something else well and i mean i don't know if you meant to say downfall of the race but i think it's more of like detriment not downfall but, but just like downfall our, of people individuals i think is, flaw. Is, there we go the yeah. flaw of our race to a lot of like modern society is like the greed and want to be i want that and I'm willing to take huge amounts of risk and get blinded by the the greed and the want for it and not be like, mm, let me go think about this for a second. Look at a second opinion. Is this the right way to do it? Is it safe to do? Is it smart to do? But people just jump at it and go. And, and I'm more looking at it kind of like on a, a brain power uh, perspective, right? If you are, let's say you're in your business, you're starting off as a, a flipper or a wholesaler or anything like that. And you don't even have systems in place. You don't have employees. You don't have automation. You are the linchpin to your business. Like anything happens to you, your business goes under. You should be spending any amount of time you have mental capacity on thinking about how to fortify your business, how to grow your business, how to expand your business, how to make your business strong and that foundation strong. If you are trying to jump into, you know, you say, hey, I'm going to wholesale single family homes. But I'm also going to do multifamily. But I'm also going to do an Airbnb. The amount of time you got to spend trying to get educated a little bit on multifamily, a little bit on Airbnb, a little bit on this other thing. It's like you know a little bit about a lot, but you don't know shit about anything specifically. Like Jack you can't, of all trades, master of none kind of Yeah, and you, and you can't narrow down and really focus and build something out because you're spread too thin. And even just thinking capacity it's like you don't even have the brain power to dedicate the amount of thought that you're going to need to get creative solutions right you could think about like strategic uh systems and things that you can implement and you're wasting all this energy and potential on like you know oh somebody's doing uh airbnbs and they're killing it and i want to do that too and i'm like you don't have a business like what are you doing Chasing the shiny object can't be fun. It is. It's fun thinking about the possibilities that it can provide. But especially when you do get those like short-term wins, it's like if you put something in crypto at like twenty thousand, then you see it shoot up to sixty. You're just like, I'm a big believer now. Instantly, so it's it just kind of like seeing those big wins, yeah. And stuff like that. But it's I'm like, a I'm a big believer. But you still don't understand. Oh, yeah. That's the whole point. Is like everybody's jumping into let's say crypto, and they're like, oh, it's an inflation hedge. It's an inflation hedge. You're gonna see. And I'm like. It's not moving like one because it it's volatile as all hell. You understand? So it's like you look at it. It's like right now it's a very speculative investment. Could it be an inflation hedge? Could it be a better uh, kind of, you know, asset to put your money into just to diversify a little bit from cash? It could be, but it isn't right now. Right now it's purely speculation. It's been people that have been getting easy money. Dumping it into Bitcoin just because everybody keeps saying it's going to go to 100 grand. It's going to go to a million. And I'm like, that's not why you buy it, though. 
you know, you buy it because it's going to supposedly be an, an inflation hedge, not because it could potentially go up to the moon. You're buying it for the wrong reasons, I believe. Right. But it goes back to like the effort that you're putting behind it. It's like now all that time you're wasting on that. And what are you doing with your business? Why are you struggling in your business? Right. Us right now, like the 14th rental that we picked up, we're turning it into an Airbnb. The only reason we're doing that is because we're partnering with you and you have experience already doing Airbnbs, right? Because if it wasn't for that, we wouldn't be doing it because to us, it's like, that's a whole other monster. That's a whole other process systems, you know, way of thinking. We got to make sure that our business can handle, you know, supplement that as well as everything else that we're doing in our business. And that's not our goal to sustain our business at the moment. So we couldn't go all in on Airbnb at this moment. Like we wouldn't do it. It wouldn't be smart for our business. But now we partner with somebody that does understand it, that can handle it, that knows like you're cutting our learning curve tremendously by doing that partnership. Does that make sense? I mean, like instead of jumping around, kind of being a little bit, you know, more cautious. Yeah, yeah, it does. And, and we've done a lot of different types of investing over the years, but we've tried to just do one or two at a time and right. become good and good at them in order to provide the the best product and to cut down the learning curve and to learn these proper systems and well that's processes. the same like and you you've done that too like with the like you guys used to have some assisted living facilities and i remember you you tried to like i'm worried you're going to do the business model of being an assisted living facility and you found like the regulatory burdens you're like never mind um but then you guys like sold that off because it was like mm, it was okay but it just it just still had its flaws that just like didn't work for what you guys wanted um, so like speak on that a little bit of like the assisted living facility, like model, because a lot of people do here, like, cause that's another hot topic when everyone comes around, when the guru starts coming around preaching assisted living facilities and then everyone's like, I'm going to do these assisted living facilities. And it's kind of like the short-term rental. It's kind of like the uh, owner finance, like everyone gets hot for it. But so what was your experience dealing like doing assisted living facilities? Yeah, that was the reason we had gotten into that is because we met some partners that were doing it and need wanted to expand their business and they needed a real estate investor just to be a homeowner that they could rent from and that therefore operate their business out of and it was a it's a great model i think uh, the residential assisted living there's typically four residents in one caretaker per house and i think during the silver tsunami that we are starting to see in a southern state that we are living in that the population of of the elderly is increasing dramatically it's a great niche i think that there was a couple of difficulties that we had seen that i would suspect other investors would stay the same that the the labor for these is incredibly difficult right now uh finding good quality la labor that will I don't think work it's just for these i think that's just the well, it's, right it's, of course of course yeah. labor for anything yeah it's in general. Um, a lot of times in the types of houses that you want to do these in tend to be in HOAs and HOAs don't like them. So we had to find stuff that were outside of restrictive homeowners associations to do it. And uh, although it's a great product, it just, it wasn't right for us. And like, like John and, and is talking about, it's to get in, to learn something well, to try it and to find out it's not for you. There's nothing wrong with that. That's just learning and progressing. Right. And then, okay, like this is, we've enjoyed it. We've really enjoyed the people that we were working with. We enjoyed the people that we were helping. I like stopping by and saying hi. Uh, but COVID changed a lot for us. And the reason we sold those is because we thought we were losing our jobs. Mm -hmm. And we just wanted a, a better uh, cash cushion to, if some, you know, if, if we were to be on the streets, I guess, if we were to yeah. get furloughed. And um, 
So, but, but that allowed us to get into the short-term rental game and to focus on it and try to get some systems set up and really learn how to operate it to a high degree. So like get, getting into something and trying and working, finding out that it's not for you, there's nothing wrong with that. Would you invest in that kind of product again? Yeah, certainly. So it was yeah. a good experience just like at the time for certain things. It's just like, hey, we're going to move away from this and go to something else. Yeah, exactly. Well, and it's also kind of like, you know, when somebody gets into real estate and they the first thing, they know nothing about real estate, but all of a sudden they want to flip a house because they got some money. They go in, they lose their ass, and then all of a sudden they're like, real estate sucks. Like, no, you sucked. Like real estate is still great, right? Uh, assisted living facilities is still great investment, still great strategies. Just it wasn't executed correctly at the time, or maybe you didn't have the right partners, or maybe just the situation wasn't right. But it doesn't make it a bad strategy. It's just something that's like, all right, I've tried it. It didn't go well. We're going to hold off and maybe we'll try it down the road, yeah. right? It's not just like shutting down completely and saying, you know, life sucks, real estate sucks, I'm leaving. Certainly, it's as with most things in life, it's neither zero percent or one hundred percent. Somewhere, sometimes the answer lies in the middle, and and that's okay. And if you guys are enjoying this talk, please hit that thumbs up and subscribe if you haven't. Help smash support it, punch it. it, just just nail it, just yeah, click it, just smash that thumbs up button. <laughs> um, and definitely ask your questions, guys. If you have any questions or concerns, I've been seeing a, a lot of great comments from uh, Tommy as always. So any questions or, cons uh, or anything you want to put on, go ahead, put it in there, and we are here to talk about it. One thing, uh, I, well, yeah. uh, that I wanted to ask and stuff like that, I mean, kind of just moving along like with the news and stuff like that, obviously airlines were a huge piece of, of the, the quote, bailouts back then and getting all the federal money to do this stuff. Like, what was it, the recovery like, like a year ago? Because, I, mean, uh, I mean, you're talking beginning of 2021. It's like things were starting, the, the vaccines were starting to come out. Like, what was it like a year ago and what is it like today? Because, like, we're in very different markets, I feel like, especially when it comes to travel with the whole COVID thing. I feel a lot of people are exhausted by it. Like, what are you experiencing, like, as an airline pilot from what it was a year ago to what it is today? The reason the airlines got the bailouts was we were – effectively told that we cannot fly governments were shutting down not not allowing flights to come in from overseas from granted there wasn't that same level of degree of shutdown in the states but we were basically told that we can't fly to a lot of places and we can't carry passengers and the the reason we got the bailouts is because the governments were telling us this and it was meant to float the airlines to get to a point where uh, demand does come back nobody expected it to come back as quickly as it did uh, business travel does seem to be coming back quickly, not as with the Omicron surge is coming back a little slower than what we had thought. Uh, people traveling for pleasure has increased significantly. So a year ago, we were, we were just starting to come back. There were maybe some inklings that demand might start coming back later in 2021. And at this point in time, we were still off. We were taking, they were offering voluntary leaves. So we were taking them up on that. And then come about June time, uh, May and June, demand just came surging back. So nobody expected it to be, what, what would that be? 15 months later, it goes from, you know, carrying sev from several millions of people a day down to several hundred thousand people a day back up into the millions so quickly. Yeah, and that's nobody one of the things I, I, I uh, we always talked about, like a lot of people were pissed that the airlines were getting bailed out. Like they were getting the money. It's like, why are the airlines not these other industries? And I was like, well... The airline industry is a, a very huge piece of the economy. Like it's how a lot, like I know the un underside of like uh, even passenger planes, like 
UPS puts it. There's packages are brought in there. Like things are going. There's extra storage space. Like mm-hmm. a lot of stuff has moved around the economy via the air. To where like I think that was like kind of the plan. It's like yes, airlines need the money. So when demand does come back, if when how how fast, the pilots are there. They're ready to go. Um, and that's why I think like it was a good move considering how fast things came back in 15 months. That is like hey, we were able to get that leisure travel back up very quickly and you had the pilots that could come back for that so i think it was one of those that like we had that discussion when they were getting those bailouts and i was like i think that's the kind of their plan and that's kind of how it worked out um but like like you said that but business travel still isn't quite back so like what is it like because you say the airlines like leisure travel is important but that's not where they make their money Correct. And it's like, it's business travel that makes the money. And that's the thing that still hasn't quite been back. I mean, you said the other day, you still haven't got that uh, guy from New York to London, last second, by first class, booking a $4,000 flight out of nowhere. Like yes. that stuff isn't, isn't coming but back yet. That's not there. And that's why you see the airlines. Some airlines are making a little bit of money right now. Some are still losing money, but we're, we're still trending at a bit of a loss, but uh, which which reflects the the lower fares that leisure travelers typically pay. Mm-hmm. So once the business demand get, does come back, they'll start making more money. Seen, are, they, are they trying to modify like business models or planes or anything like that to say like, hey, turning them into do- buses? You're standing holding on to yeah. the bar. Well, just basically like just changing like marketing tactics or just like how the business ran to say like, hey, if business travel doesn't come back for four years. Do they modify like maybe okay? Let's shorten up first class, retrofitting airplanes to add a few more leisure travel seats. No, the, the airlines had to plan so far ahead of time that there was there was none of that going on. We'll just yeah. we'll just charge less for the seats that are that are already there. If we need less airplanes in the air, we'll put, we'll put the ones on the ground that have been retrofitted for to, higher business. I remember going to Kansas City and just like I don't remember when was that it was. I don't know, but I just remember seeing like just Delta. I mean, it was like a graveyard of Delta jets just lined up on this empty runway. There's probably 50 of them just Jesus. sitting there, not being used. Like you said, taking planes out of service. It's like, yeah, it was like almost just a graveyard of like these jets right on the side of the highway, right by the airport. It's like, look at all those freaking planes just sitting so there. It, and that was one of the things that like I, I've told you before. I don't agree with those bailouts, right? I don't agree that the, the airline should have gotten bailed out. Like, I get the repercussions of not doing it. I understand that. But we are getting to a point that I'm seeing now, and we've been talking about this for a while, is everything, like the airlines, has just become impossible to fail. If they fail, they tank literally everything. Everything goes to shit. So they can make as many bad decisions as they want with no repercussions at this point because they know they cannot be allowed to fail. They cannot be allowed to not, you know, to go out of business because it's like we've already put in too much. We already put in money in you when you were already weak. And what's going to happen? You know, it's getting to a point where, like, it went from too big to fail to now it's impossible to fail. Like, what's that look like? You have that, what do they call it, moral hazard, right, where that's gone. Right, you you don't have to worry about so much about doing the right thing because it's like, well, what are they gonna do? Not bail us out? Over the decades, the airlines have gone through a lot of consolidation over the last twenty and thirty mm-hmm. years. So there's there's much actually airlines have been getting bailed out for decades. This isn't a, a recent occurrence. This has mm-hmm. been going on for many many years. Uh, they haven't been as large, but we've also gotten to be to, to the point where airlines are starting to come up with 
different tactics when these things happen to keep people on the payroll instead of furloughing people, uh, which takes potentially could take years to spin it down if it was going to be as large of a cut as I said during COVID, and then years to spin it back up to get everybody through training, to get everybody back into the the aircraft and their seats that they were that they're assigned to. And it costs a ton of money. So it actually saves the airlines quite a bit of money to keep people just where they're at mm. and just come up with some other uh not incentives but other different types of structures to to pay people you know instead of furloughing us we all based upon our seniority we took a reduction in hours um so we were working anywhere from a half to three quarters the amount of hours that we were originally doing but that kept people in their seats and that's knowing that that's that the pandemic was going to be more short term than after 2001 or 2008 yeah that was what they came up with so I would say they, they've gotten better about this over the years, but there is, yeah, how do, how do you overcome that moral hazard of knowing that you all ultimately have the backstop of, of Uncle Sam? Yeah, and, I, and I'm not saying that, you know, the airline industries are evil. I'm not saying anything like that. I'm just saying from a business perspective, if you know there's really no way you can fail, what limits the level of risk that you're going to take? I mean, you know, it's like a kid with a credit card and their daddy always takes care of the bill. It's like... When are you going to learn to control money? Like, you know that I, I, anytime I swipe that credit card, there's going to be money in there. I don't need to know where it comes from. You know, so those are the things that to me, it's like, I get it again. I, I understand why it, they did it and everything. I just still don't agree with those courses because as we've gone through each crisis, everything gets worse. Everything he's gets. He's just stuck in the Stone Age. Yeah, and everything when it comes, just when it comes gets, to finance. He's just, he's he's hundred years. Yeah, and still <laughs> kind of more of like sound living. But um, well, so like once it, you started, it, just, you can't go back. Yeah, uh, you're like yeah, you exactly. you like the the world. I think would just absolutely fall apart. For we would go backwards societally. Technology would go back. Business investment would go. Business would fail. Like would something great come out of it? Sure, 10, 20 years down the road. I completely disagree. Uh, it's like, like I think like if you look how quickly system, people have ad- businesses have adapted. Just in these last two years, well, there yeah, been... but they look at the amount of money that's taken to do that. Creativity, the... most of it. No. Like most of these people Get came out, out of here. nothing. The, the they weren't fe- getting funded. The Fed coming. Well, yes, the small businesses. Yeah, but where was that money coming from? It was coming from big businesses. It was coming from government bails. Coming from stocks backs. The Fed coming in and liquefying the entire market with massive amounts of stimulus that let that trickle and flow through the economy. The uh, the stimulus checks, the mortgages that they stopped, the bailing out the commercial industry, saying with the Commercial spaces where it's like, hey, don't pay rent. We'll do something because Uncle Sam's paying us money to sustain these commercial businesses. As like, if you wouldn't have done that, I, you would have locked the entire financial grid of yeah. everything, and money would have stopped moving. I agree, but you're talking about stimul- stimulating the public versus funding a business. I'm talking about like they stimulated the public, but the public still came out with innovation to adapt to the market to where it was at. So you're saying that if they would have let the airline tanks not the airline. It, I'm saying I'm saying everything. Like I said, like the massive amount of because I mean the airlines only got fifty billion of the four trillion that got put in or something like that. I think you guys got two rounds of it. It's about fifty or fifty three billion yeah, somewhere right now. But we're like they're a very small percentage of the trillions that was pumped in. So that that's where I'm saying like yeah, the airlines would might not have like been all right, but I'm saying like the bailout piece of like pumping money into the market, liquefying the market, keeping sure capital is moving across the industry. Like if they didn't do that, provide some kind of stimulus and the financial system would have locked up like 
society would have just like just so, completely fell so apart. you're seeing that we are better off right now because of what they did right yeah so because of what they did our what they say our money supply has grown by 40 percent since 2020 and 40 percent growth in two years is an insane amount of growth in the money supply right so it's caused crazy inflation yeah. which is causing more problem which first it was going to be tr uh, transitory which we said months ago in this show that no we're like way. this is not transitory <laughs> with the amount of money you're pumping in I this mean, shit is going to we just usually work for the fed and all this stuff because i mean they all got a wrong role like yeah doubtful they're like hire me i do a better job than you do exactly so it's like <laughs> so you look at all this and right now the fed is kind of stressed the hell out on how to control inflation they don't want to bring inflation down because their goal has always been to have inflation their goal was always two percent inflation you need to have inflation you need to have constant growth in the money supply because if not like the whole system just crumbles well you have yeah you have deflationary pressures because like as society grows as new businesses grow like that's a part like you need new money to sustain the growth of new businesses new population right. i'm saying like if money stays everyone says like oh it should peg to the dollar and not move it's like well, then prices are going to continue to fall. Then how do you price that into loans? How do you, like, credit is what does grow an economy. Like, we exactly. have been doing that for generations. Yeah. I mean, even back, I mean, you can go back in time hundreds of years, and they were trying to create credit systems to grow. Um, or if you have a money supply that's fixed, it's very hard to grow stuff because it's like there's only a limited amount of dollars. And if you have population growing at 2 3 4% and money not doing that, that means there's fixed amount of dollars and more people trying to use it right. so it's going to push things down so so my point is like now you see all this inflation we see everything now the fed is trying to come in and they're they started tapering they say they're going to be done by march maybe and they're going to start interest rate hikes to control this almost everything that we're seeing is it's going to go from one extreme to another extreme and one thing they can't have is deflation like they can have what do they call it stagflation where you're having, you know, that kind of in between, like prices are still going up, just not as fast, you know, and you're still having that inflation. But they're saying like, there's almost no chance that the Fed is going to be able to control this without a massive like. It's going to be very interesting of how that's going to play out. Uh, and that was like the next topic I want to roll into today was just like this inflation talk. There's a lot of talk about this kind yeah. of stuff. Or it's like the, the the definition of stagflation is you have rising prices and rising unemployment. To where it's like, how do you fix unemployment? Lower interest rates, so business is higher. But lowering interest rates and creating money increases inflation. So mm -hmm. like, well, crap. Which one do we do? And that's that's kind of what happened in uh, the late like seventies and eighties, where they just said, screw it. We're gonna raise interest rates. We're gonna kill this inflation thing. We know it's gonna hurt. And it's going to create a recession, but we have to do it to stop this inflation because they kind of look at it for the pandemic. It's like, do we let everything fall and fall apart or do we put money in? Like, which is the worst of two evils? Neither option is good. Neither, they don't want to do either one, but they have to do something. They can't just sit there and just wait. Uh, otherwise, that could just potentially be even worse. Yeah. So it's like, what is going to happen? Um, so, I mean, that. so kind of because Tommy has been asking, you know, like, all right, these are all the problems, but what do you do? Like, how do you, you know, how do you take advantage of it? How do you monetize on all this? And one of the speculations is what's going to happen to real estate when interest rates rise? So I found a great article and it was um, by, uh, what was the source? 
Oh, I can't remember which the source, so I'd have to open it up. But they talk about that with real, uh, with real estate, like what's going to happen. So it's a very different – they, they, and they break – they do a great job. We'll link the article on the bottom because, it, like, if you read the whole thing, there's a lot in there because they go over multiple asset classes. Yeah. It's like real estate, yes, while people try to compare to stocks, crypto, all sort of stuff, but it's different. People need a place to live. They don't need another share of Tesla. Yeah. So it's kind of one of those things. That's why you see the stock market. I think it's down like 10, 15% in the last like two months, but real estate values are still up. So going to the article a little bit, it says uh, interest rates remain low by historical standards, but they're finally moving up a bit. The 10 year treasury was yielding around 1.2 as recently as August. It's now more than 1.8. It's now expected the Fed will raise short term interest rates. Four times this year, going from 0 to 1% in a world with 7% inflation certainly doesn't seem like the end of the world, but the Fed has a psychological stronghold on the markets in many ways. In fact, we're already seeing this with mortgage rates. The 30-year fixed-rate mortgage was roughly 2.8% in August, and it's now up to 3.5%. Again, still low by historical standards, but if these rates continue to rise, that could put some pressure on home buyers. The last Fed rate hike cycle from 2015 to 2018 did see mortgage rates rise, going from 36 in early 2015 all the way up to 5% by November 8, 2018. On a mortgage, on a $350,000 mortgage, that's additional almost $285 per month with that kind of interest rate jump. Unfortunately, all else is rarely equal, and the housing market doesn't care about financial theory as much. From 2015 to 2018, you had an interest rates rise from 3.6 to 5%, but housing prices rose 23% over those three years. So you still had rising interest rates and you still had rising home prices. So that whole rising, uh, these interest rates rights are going to tank the housing market. Well, they haven't historically, and they actually go over, like he, he could not find a single period of time during interest rate rise or hikes over the past like 100 years where home prices fell. And when they were raising prices, they were all still positive. Some of them up to 30% all the way down to 2% rises over the periods of time, which I thought was actually just, that's pretty interesting. Like I did, I always, same correlation, like, hey, rising interest rates could potentially, it is going to make home buying harder to do. But that was the point where I was saying, is like people still need a place to live. They see it as a an emotional thing of like, I want to settle down. I want to expand my family. I'm growing. I need a house or bigger space. That's where I say, like, you don't need another Bitcoin. You don't need another P a stock, a Tesla, Apple, whatever it may be, or more ETF or anything like that. Um, so there was a survey done earlier that month by uh, Redfin. And what would they do if interest rates were to rise? And nearly half of the surveyors claimed they would have caused a greater sense of urgency to get in and buy a house now. Thinking like, hey, if interest rates are going to rise, I want to get in and buy now. Adding more fuel to the fire to people wanting to buy. And that's what something I thought was even crazier is like, huh. I always kind of wondered that too. Because like, I feel that's one reason why right now for um, the labor shortages we see in like the construction industry, like where do they all go? It's like everyone is busy as hell. And I think it's a lot of people seeing prices increase and were uh, these old models. They, there's always that saying like, hey, that past does, what is it? History doesn't repeat itself, but it always rhymes. Yeah. Something like that. Yep. Um, where they say, like, hey, rising interest rates cause people to save more because things are going to get more expensive. Well, I don't think that's that way right now. Everyone's like, no, I want to spend now because prices are going to rise. I want to get these renovations done now because prices are going to rise. I want to get that fence replaced because I needed to do it before prices rise even further. So I think that's another reason why, like, we just see it's like everybody's like 
busy as hell. You go into Home Depot or Lowe's. Like I've never been to a place where like a Home Depot when like at 10 o'clock in the morning, there's a traffic jam in the damn parking lot because like there's just so many trucks and so many people in there buying. It's like, my God, like everybody is here buying. And don't go in a weekend. Yeah, no, oh, oh no. And then like they know now too, it's like there's supply chain issues. It's not just rising prices yeah. they had with inflation in the past because usually you still had the products were all there. They were just increasing. Now it's the prices are increasing and you can't get the material. Like I was trying to find a, a tube of liquid, one small tube of liquid nail, three home depots, not a single one had a tube of liquid nail. And like one place had gorilla glues equivalent of the, and there was one tube. And then like you go in, like the paint section is diminished. The, the caulking section is diminished. And it's like, Oh my God, like where's everything going? And so I think that's adding to this, this fuel of like people wanting to buy so that um, to their point where it's just like price, people are getting this time around more sense of urgency to get those things done now than waiting. So, and then one thing they kind of ended it with is like people buy a house because they want to settle down. They buy because of the stage that of life they're in. They they buy because of jobs or family or community or schools or locations and dozens of other reasons that come into play before borrowing rates enter the question. So their case in that article was like rising interest rates still don't mean that home prices are going to crash. They're going to stop. It's like they still rise. And especially right now when we're at such historical lows of inventory. So like it, it you're going to still have that constant pressure where like, yeah, they might not be rising 20% year over year. Cause I, I think we can all agree on that. Like that's unsustainable. Um, but there's still going to be positive pressure to people to get in there and buy. So here's how I look at it, right? The, the government has come out and said it and the fed has said it. They're not going to let housing crash. They can't. Housing crashes, like everything goes to shit for them. You know, everything is placed on housing, like affordability. Everything is, their focus is people need to be able to buy a home, you know? So right now you're getting ready to do the market update for San Antonio. How many months of inventory do we have? Uh, I think we're still like at like 1.7. 1.7. Yeah. So it's, like, it, it's below two. I can't right. remember the exact number, but it's below two. So even if they raise interest rates and the market slows down, like we're still what going to be at 2.5, maybe three months of inventory. It's still a hot market. Like it's still, you know, your, your balance market is six months. You're still at a hot market and you have the government pretty much back. Was it? If they raise interest rates right now and right now that's what we're seeing. I mean, the, the Dow Jones, I think is down what, like total 10% so far. Yeah. And usually it's a uh, sell in May go away kind of thing. And we're margin. It's already done 10%. So I don't know, you know, they're already in anticipating those interest rate hikes. They're not liking it. They're not going to be happy with those interest rate hikes. And if it affects borrowers and people buying real estate and real estate all of a sudden just like really takes a correction, they're going to have to come back in and lower interest rates right away because they can't afford yeah. to. Well, and also the, the, the presentation we watched um, with that economist. And, Mark Dotzer. Yeah. And uh, he said like- He's good. Even at these like our balanced market where inventory or prices are supposed to rise, like even at six and a half months of inventory, prices still rise at an average of about a two to three percent. It's like that's where it really is like the the equilibrium really is. It's like look where we're at. We're below two nationally. And so we have mass, especially here in Texas, he's like, we have a massive amount of people. Like I think it was um I don't know if you heard this, but uh for the second year in a row, 
U-Haul King, the number one salesman for U-Haul as the governor of California. So they the west the west <laughs> the west coast literally ran out of U-Haul trucks. They couldn't get it. Like they're like they're just like they were having to figure out how like how do we get all of these damn trucks from the south and Midwest back to the west coast for this massive demand of people trying to come to the to the they, east. they need to create like an uber of u-haul and just have people that need side gigs just driving i'm just U-Hauls waiting back. to see the day when i'm driving down the road and i just see a train just loaded up with like this u-haul trucks all <laughs> of them heading west just like like how do we get all these things back over and here? what's funny is like people say oh you know the big migration the big move has stopped more people are not going to be leaving what do you think that means when there's no u-hauls on the west coast it's like that's people leaving. Well, that's what like, that means. Because like Texas, I think they were the number one gainer of population in like uh, 2020 and 2021 or something like that. Like Texas and Florida gained, like I think Florida was second, like 250,000. Texas in first by a huge margin, of like 350. Um, and it's like that pressure on housing yeah. is going to be here. Because like, like we've seen it with all our rental properties. Like I put something on the market. I'm like, I'm just going to just, you know what? I'm going to go for $200 over what I think the comps would be and see what happens. Boom, first weekend gone. It's like, oh my God. Like, there's such high demand for housing that it's like, I don't want to be like greedy in a sense, but it's also like, it's that equilibrium thing. It's like, I put it on the market. When I see I'm getting just massive amounts of calls, like, my God, did I underprice this? Like, I'm just like blown away of what like this housing cost is for a property like this. But it it is what it is. So, Andrew, you, you invest in a few different cities and everything. Like, how do you see all this? Well, and because I think that such interest rates are at such historical lows, like you alluded to, that these, you know, if they raise interest rates a couple of times this year, it's largely symbolic. Let's face it. It's it's what that's going to do to consumer sentiment is the big question. But um, I think that unless there's a big demand shock, which raising interest rates a half a percent or three quarters of a percent is not going to... Sub- provide that shock that is needed to really shake up this sub two months of inventory nationwide. So we're, we're looking at it from our investing perspective as uh, values are going to keep going up. Interest rates will also go up, but they're still going to be very, very affordable. Well, I mean, somebody just commented here saying, yeah. considering the influx of people coming to Texas, do you think the rate increases will really affect the San Antonio market, though? Do you think it will drop the prices? You're like, no, not at all. Okay. And it's like, I, I don't think, it, I mean, it will slow it down. And I think it, and it, it does need to slow down. Like you can't like like that's does what I worry. Like, hey, it? like I'm, I'm, it's always fun to watch that equity just continue to go look, up. Look at Austin; they were doing this way before the pandemic happened, and and dude, it's they're, nowhere they're, near they're, slowing down. They oh, they're not forty percent anymore. Oh, uh, okay, <laughs> they're like forty percent, like three months in a row, year over year. I was like, oh my god. Um, but it, it it does need to slow down because like you, that's what happens like 2008 when things get too high and too speculative and it creates a political turmoil. And when people like really start complaining that, Hey, and that's what I think all of our big fig, uh, fears are is when government tries to step in because they always go way too far. And for our industry of them saying, Hey, they could pass a law that you have to own instead of 90 days. Like you literally can't sell this to get any type of loan product unless you've owned it for at least a year. I was like, that's the kind of stuff that I well, would be worried we're about. We're already starting and seeing a lot of cities and states uh, regulation that we talked about last Friday on uh, on wholesaling and everything. So they're they're ready, and they've been talking about going after investors for a while. Because I mean, a lot of single family homes that have sold over the past couple of years, a lot, the majority were to 
investors. You know, they're buying up a lot of houses and they're starting to build neighborhoods for rentals. You know, they're not even building neighborhoods to sell houses. They're building neighborhoods for rentals specifically. So we're seeing the investor demand and everything for real estate is through the roof and investors are loaded because of all the printing of the money, everything, all the prices going up. But kind of going back to this guy's question, uh, I'm assuming a guy, sorry, um, Jax, is would rising interest rates affect San Antonio? You got to think about affordability. If rates rise, right, loans are going to be a little bit harder for people to get. They're going to be more expensive for people to afford. San Antonio, compared to the West Coast, it's extremely affordable. So even if it's harder for you to get those, uh, you know, those good rates and everything like that, you, your money still is going to go a lot further in a city like San Antonio than it will in like Austin or even in the West Coast. So I think if interest rates go up, San Antonio is going to continue well, that's to grow. It. Like San Antonio is actually one of the top five ranked, like by several big studies and stuff of being like one of the top five markets for 2021 because. 2022? Yeah, that's what I said. Okay. Um, Just check. <laughs> uh, God, that's what I Every time I think about the year, I'm like, I'm still like back in like the end of 2020. Like it's yeah. like this last two years is poof, gone. Um, now I just completely lost my train of thought. Well, uh, I guess from our perspective, where we live up in Colorado in the Denver suburbs, prices have gotten so astronomically high, That's where I was much going. like reflecting the West Coast, that people are just, they're not buying rental properties to put them on the market to rent them out because you're going to get, you know, a half a percent of rent of what that home is worth every single month. And what's making just, what's making it so hot up there where, where you are in Colorado? Well, Besides the free weed, uh, <laughs> legal weed. <laughs> Uh, it's just, it, it's a desirable place to live. There's, mm -hmm. there's a high quality of life up there. There's high paying jobs. There's people mm -hmm. that are fleeing high income areas to go and, I mean, uh, high wage earning areas. I'm sorry. Where, you know, yeah. places like California, New York, people want to get out of the city. Like when we had our Airbnbs up there, the, the, uh, we had a lot of people that came that were remote workers that just had money to spend, but didn't want to spend it where they were. So they mm -hmm. came to Colorado. And I think that that's driving up a lot of prices. A lot of people are buying second homes and spending a lot of time up there. Well, that's what I think uh, where I was going with that one is like why they say San Antonio is going to be good is because these other markets blew up so fast, so quickly and became like so unaffordable that it's like, okay, now we're starting to move into these uh, secondary, more tertiary markets of like the San Antonio's or like the suburbs outside of major areas because the housing prices didn't, the, yeah, why they went up 20%, they didn't go up 40 and now it's like, okay, I want a house. I'm going to go here. And when businesses look to relocate, they look at those kind of things. It's like, okay, yeah, Austin's a great place, but like our workforce for what we pay can't afford to live there. And there's going to be a terrible quality of life. So like, let's look at other places like San Antonio. Let's look at other markets that aren't mm -hmm. the big names of your of the South, like your Atlanta's or your uh, Dallas's, your Austin's, or these other places. I mean, Florida's got several of them as well. So in, in talking in strategies, right, uh, as far as investment strategies and stuff like that, uh, Tommy brings up doing a lot of owner finance and wraps and stuff like that. I've always been against owner finance purely for the fact that if you are selling a home with owner financing, you are locking in any future appreciation. You're not going to receive any of that, right? You're locking in the price and the appreciation that the property is still going to appreciate, 
But if you did it correctly and you weren't trying to screw over the buyer, then that buyer is going to be able to refinance that home in no time and you lost all that potential appreciation. So I don't, that, that's that been my struggle with owner finance. I, it's not that I don't like the strategy. I just think it's a better use of a strategy for when you have a market that's more stagnant or maybe it's starting to uh, tank a little bit and stuff like that. It's like, yeah, you're not. Or, or so, houses that don't qualify for traditional lending standards. Old electrical, um, old foundations got an issue. Like where it's like, you so can't you're, bank you're financing. owner financing a piece of shit to somebody. Not necessarily. <laughs> it's like you have like a lot of housing stock where the, the we've always talked about like the housing values used for in order for you to buy that property, renovate it to the current standards to get a loan and to sell to the retail market. You can't get it low enough. Right. The they they got to pay you to buy the house. Exactly. It's like, I, I just like this house with cost today is like, it's going to take me $100,000 to bring this thing up to the traditional standards. It's only worth 120, 130. Oh, it's wait, like, wait, wait. He he could. All right. He said, no, we are buying them owner finance. Okay. Well, that's, yeah. I was like, I was like, I, was like, he agree. Yes. like I know yeah. Tommy. Tommy wouldn't be going for owner well, finance I'm right just now. Kinda, but he said, because yeah. like, he made a comment earlier mm. of like here in the next, it was like in a few years, we will walk to a home and say, tell me about the underlying note before we even look at the interior of the home and we've mentioned this several years like it's the mortgage that's going to become the asset especially in high price exactly. areas where it's like hey what is your payment what is the interest rate and what can we do to work out that because i want to assume that note yeah. not just the house well especially if you start getting what not if we're going to keep having inflation inflation is not going away remember that the fed's target is two percent that's constant inflation so what does this mean is that if you have a 30-year fixed mortgage and your payment is a thousand bucks a month, over the years, that thousand bucks, you're actually paying it down with cheaper dollars. Yep. You understand? Because now with inflation and everything, that thousand bucks doesn't go that far. Well, but for you, it's older. paying down a mortgage. And when people understand like mortgage too, it's like, I don't want to assume the 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 29 years left on that mortgage. Like if you got 10, like 20 years left on that mortgage, I was yeah. like now, like, yeah, I, I might not cash flow a lot, but like a lot of my principal is going to pay off. I think it was like Dan Francis told us like, yeah, in the first 10 years of a mortgage, you pay off. I think it's like almost two thirds or over two thirds of the interest or over half the interest in the first 10 years. Or it's just like, I'm gaining a lot of equity pay down in that house. So but it's one of the things you got to make sure it's like you can sustain the house uh, as well. Because like, yeah, why the payment might be high, the rents aren't as high and you're only getting like a hundred, two hundred dollars on it. And like, that's not enough to sustain a property long-term, right. but I'm gaining massive amounts of equity into the property, but you need to be able to understand those things. So while ideally you would want to get a property that has a loan that's 10 plus years old, you know, so you are paying down principal really any loan at this point with a low interest rate is still a good loan to absorb. The problem that I see is you got to be able to find the seller that needs to do that deal, right? Because right now, even the you know lowest price properties that we've seen, you put them on the MLS and they sell with no problem. So it's like they're and they can get the loan out of their name, everything, and sell for what they owe. You understand? So you're, I think that, that the target of trying to buy subject to or owner finance from a seller, like it's going to be, you don't have that availability like we used to have, you know, seven years ago when we were buying uh, foreclosures and doing them subject to. At this point, like they, they're not hurting. Like they're not, unless they're maybe getting close to being underwater or they owe what the house is worth or yeah. something along those lines. But with the appreciation we've been having, 
I mean, how do you see that playing out with owner finance? Do you guys see like it's a well? I, I think it's one of those, like we've, we've experienced it uh, of like if somebody sells owner finance, like you got to understand like why somebody's doing that and like how that strategy works because like you're tying up their name, their mortgage is on that thing, and like and they want to go buy a house in the future in the next two years, and you save them their credit, like they don't care, they can cause a lot of havoc to get that loan call due and really mess with you as far as assuming that note where I think it does become beneficial. It's like we have some of these, we own our finance from uh, an elderly couple that had multiple rental properties, still had the mortgages and they wanted to create cash flow for themselves. We're like, yeah, I'll own our finance it to you mm-hmm. and it's own free and clear or mortgage balance low or whatever it may be. I see it becoming a benefit for that aspect for somebody being like, I don't want to mess with these anymore. I'm at the end of my career, but I don't want to sell them and have a ton of cash. It's like, I'll owner finance them to you. You just make payments over time. Yeah. Um, and I mean, any thoughts on owner yeah, finance? Yeah, there's always going to be people in a situation that want to use these as like a bond or an annuity type, mm-hmm. just income producing. I don't want any hassles. I just want money showing up on the first of the month. And and that's that. I think there's always going to be buyers out there. And, uh, and kind of like a, a book that we've been reading, uh, Think Again. I strongly recommend that book. But the point to this is not telling you don't do owner finance. It's just seeing like which areas you're not going to find them in. So you can start thinking about where can you find them? Where can you make them make sense? And like uh, Tommy over here, he's putting like probates, rural, non-sophisticated sellers. Like there are still markets in areas and submarkets that owner finance is a smart way to go. For sure. So you need to learn the strategy. You need to understand it. And just because it doesn't fit for the masses it doesn't mean that it doesn't fit for everybody. And the few that it does fit for, it's going to be a hell of an investment that you get. Because, I mean, you're absorbing now a loan that's probably 10 years old, low interest. I mean, shit. Like, who doesn't want to do that? Oh, I agree. So, I mean, like, yeah, the the owner finance is still, it's just, you just have to pick the area that it works in. Right. It's like, I wouldn't be owner finance, trying to owner finance a house that's worth $250,000 that was built in 1995. It's like, I feel like those still got a lot of room to run to increase. And then it's also trying to get a good return on that. Or like the payment would be so ungodly high to get a decent return for that cash. Because you like owner finance still has a higher interest rate. Mm-hmm. You're usually doing like 10% interest or something, 12% interest. When you do a 12% loan on a $350,000 or $250,000 house, like even with a large down payment, it's like that payment is going to be astronomical where they're going to be very very heavily incentivized to get out of that to refinance into something else and then your cash is back in your pocket like owner finance is meant for like no i want to owner finances for multiple multiple years to really get up that interest payment up because like it's all front end interest loaded before you start getting your principal back so if they paid off in a year it's like well now i gotta go do it again so i think it's it's definitely a lower priced asset uh, or strategy so how are you seeing now um, the potential interest rate hikes, everything, like this current economy and the potential that we see for 2022? Like, what are your thoughts? Like, what do you guys think is going to be coming down the line in 2022 for as far as the market goes and how that's going to affect real estate? How it's going to... When you say the market, you're talking everything. real like, estate market? Like, what do you think 2022 or, is going to do? Or economy or everything? All of it. Well, I mean, I think it's one that the the stock market is going to be the piece you can already see as they're talking about it. Like it, I, and we've had some just... <laughs> Was it's gone up like over 20% the last like two years in a row, like in the middle of a pandemic and stuff. And that's a direct correlation of uh, this massive stimulus 
and money being pumped into the market trying to find a return. So I think you're going to see the stock market piece is going to be if you're just like broad based talking indices, ETFs, like they're going to struggle some um, for sure. I mean, I don't, I don't know if it's going to be like a 50 percent crash or anything like that, because uh, one, I don't think that the Fed would let that happen. It's like they'll let it go drop uh, for sure. And then they know it needs to drop. But I, I don't think it's going to be just like a massive crash for it. Real estate, I think it's still going to be, I mean, just all the headwinds it's got, ultra-low inventory, people wanting to move, especially here. Uh, higher interest rate, that article I just read, of people still needing a place to live. Right. Um, it's it's an emotional purchase, not so much, I just I just want this because I want it. It's, I know a lot of people need it. So I think that's going to be where that goes. Uh, the one piece I'm very curious of what's going to happen, I'm curious to hear you guys' uh, opinions on these material prices, consumer products, like hiring, like, this labor shortage that we got is like, is higher interest rates going to help out those scenarios of products, supply chains, um, and labor shortages? Thoughts? Yeah, you know, stepping back, I just don't. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just. It's hypotheticals. It's just like, just based on your prior knowledge, higher interest rates. Do you think that's going to help the overall job market as far as from the massive labor shortages we got and the supply chain issues? John? <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll buy you some time. Um, <laughs> so uh, let me give you some uh, stats I was uh, seeing recently. So we have right now, and these are approximate numbers because they're always correcting, but we have approximately 10.8 million job openings with 6.3 million unemployed. So we have more job openings than we have people to work those jobs. So how do you think that's gonna affect supply chains? How do you think that's gonna affect pricing when people can't hire the staff so they can produce the products or they can ship it or they can deliver it or they can sell the product, they don't have the people working there. Well, this is my theory on is that I think it's gonna help it. Because the economy is trying to expand at a very rapid rate, and there's lots of cash and cheap money. Mm -hmm. This is why they talk about like they don't want inflation to get too hot and uh, the economy overheat. Because you have these scenarios where like everybody's trying to hire, everybody's trying to expand at one time. Everybody's the business is good, and when do banks lend to you? When your business is good. And so now you got a lot more money, too much credit being created, and they can't get the people. So like, hey, I'm going to expand this division, and it's going to cost. X hundred millions dollars, whatever you're going to do. And then they go borrow it and they try to expand, but then they realize I can't hit to find the people because the supply chain's getting hit because they can't find the people to work and they're trying to expand their business. Everybody's trying to expand at one time and there's just not the people to do yeah, it. Yeah, but what, what about the problem that I look at more is the mom and pop shops, right? So you're looking at right now the the unemployment problem that we're having of or the underemployment problem that people are not looking for jobs. They're not even trying to get jobs. They're... It's hard to hire, but then you have somebody like Amazon that's like, we'll pay for your school. We'll pay for your college. We'll pay for your degree. We'll pay for this. We'll raise your wage. We'll pay for your health insurance. They can afford to do all that. Yeah. But the mom and pop shops that still need people to run their stores, they can't offer those incentives. Yeah. So the way I look at it is like, I always find it funny when they say, you know, oh, tax the rich, the rich are greedy and all this. It's like, all of these policies that have been put in place, and it's not even on Biden, or it's been coming. You know what I mean? Trump started a lot of them. Biden's continuing them. All of these policies are making the rich even richer. They're making these massive companies even bigger. 
And the mom and pop shops are the ones that are really struggling. Well, that's what, and that's my, my point. Is like, like those people have those assets. And when lending prices increase and um, their borrowing rates increase and their economies, their businesses can't expand. That's where my case is like they're trying to slow it down. So those businesses can't do stuff like that to where like when you increase those interest rates and that you'll see that uh, opening job numbers start to fall. And it's not because of hiring. They're just saying like, okay, well, we can't afford to expand like this anymore. The economy is slowing down, not say going to recession, but it's Mm -hmm. like, it's not expanding. We can't make this happen. So we're going to close these job opportunities. Because right now they call it like 2020, they're already going to 2021. They're calling it the year of the great resignation where people were jumping from job to job to job to job, trying to find these better stuff. And when those interest rates increase, the economy stops expanding. That's going to slow that rate of hiring down to where you then now the the mom and pop shop that runs into local delivery business. And it's like, well, I can't go work for these ones because those ultra high rate jobs aren't there anymore because the Amazon's not expanding as quickly or, or investing as heavily. But now I can go find this job over here. Being they got to survive job. until they then. got well, yeah. But then like, you have these jobs that will get start getting filled, and that's where I think it'll help the supply chain. Uh, once they stop putting these regulations and shutdowns and stuff, I think that's another thing. Those need to go away. And then the, the amount of jobs and money flowing to the economy needs to regress to where people have to go find these jobs. They have to fill these ones that are still going to be open because like the supply chain issues, it's, prob- it's, it's moving product. It's your entry-level jobs that aren't being filled that are the issue because they can't pay $35 an hour and stuff like that. And I think that's why they're trying to stop it. Cause if they have to increase their business by increasing those wages that passes down straight to the end consumer, which creates more inflation. So trying to slow down the recovery and the creation of money slows down the rate of expansion and lets people fill in the gaps in between that have been left in the wake of like everything expanding so quickly and, and moving around. Go ahead. And it, it's a more, it's a ca- more calibrated expansion. Uh, it's slow and more steady and more predictable. And maybe those those employees that were on the very edge of maybe quitting their job to go start their own business, maybe with uh, more difficult, well, not more difficult lending, lending standards, but also increased interest rates, that might produce just enough hesitation for people to not go out and start their own business. So they will remain an employee somewhere else for a mom and pa um, that, that needs the help. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess uh, I'm, I see it more pessimistic towards the view of finally he admits that he's a middle uh, middle to lower uh income classes because the inflation right now is hurting them right inflation right now is that's who it hurts the most because that's where they're raising most of their prices right used car sales have gone through the roof uh groceries the other day you said you wanted to buy what you know adult diapers and something else and then Mm. it was like 50 bucks baby formula yeah Yeah. um (laughs) and uh you know you spent like 50 dollars on like two bags of groceries no it was 300 well yeah and then i got i went and just bought like 350 dollars worth of stuff and it was like had like (laughs) eight grocery bags in the bed of my truck i'm like oh my god if you spend 300 dollars you can walk out with the bags in your hands yeah yeah that was like when i walked into the house like yes i I try to take as many trips as possible but that 350 bucks it was in one trip i was able to grab everything and walk in the door it's like man 10 years ago like i probably would have filled my bed full of truck bed full of so going back to what i'm my point is that you're you are you're having that right now right you're having the small businesses that don't have the capital that these massive companies do to incentivize the hiring, incentivize all these things. They got to outlast. Then if interest rates go up, they didn't cla- They wouldn't qualify for loans now. They're definitely not going to qualify for loans then. 
You know, and who's still in power? The big companies are still sitting pretty. Not the smaller guys. The smaller guys are still going to be hurting. You understand? So I think like the way this is shaping out, like the the lower and middle class are the ones that are going to get screwed the most. And my point is that I don't think the government is going to allow that to happen. So I can definitely see more stimulus checks, more benefits, more bonuses being given out to make sure you keep that lower income and middle class happy. And those those with assets over the last year and a half have not fared poorly uh, oh. due to runaway inflation. And those who are paying for those products that business owners and asset owners produce are the ones stealing the burden, therefore driving a greater wealth gap. And as you yeah. say, the government's just not going to let that happen in, in today's political climate. It's uh, well, they can't because that's their that's the voter base, and they will cater to what that massive base is. I mean, they're the ones that, I mean, there's the the population is there. They by far outweigh anybody with massive amounts of assets, and like so, like those are the people that need votes. They need people to go vote for them. So, like, what do those people want? They're going to give them. But I think another thing with these um, rising interest rates definitely help. Um, that definitely help is the fact of you won't have as many merger acquisitions trying to streamline to pick up people uh, and to like eliminate business and competition because that's the problem with like when the small business sector can't uh, fill in the gaps yeah the big companies will be like you know what screw it then we can't find small businesses to fill in these gaps we're just gonna go create it ourselves yeah and we're gonna bring these people in and go do it so yeah I, I do agree that you're gonna have innovation is going to be what always pulls everybody out. I just want to say, like, I hope it's not, and I already know the answer, but, like, I hope it's not more of government intervention versus innovation. And I believe that it's going to happen that way. I think it's going to be more government intervention that's going to prevent those things from happening versus allowing innovation to solve that problem. So I think uh, as far as entrepreneurship and all that, I don't know. I'm curious to see how that's going to all play out. Yeah. No, it is going to be very interesting. I mean, with the rising rates, it's going to be a very interesting climate to see what exactly happens and what comes of it. Um, so it's very interesting. I, I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, yeah. we can all speculate. on. It's like, I'm still glad I'm in real estate. I'll tell you that uh, for sure. But what, what's the next topic you got? I mean, this is where I was just wanted to spend a lot of time. I was talking like yeah. the speculation of like, what do you think is going to happen as far as like the hiring, the material consumer products? And like, I mean, one thing too is like, where's this political climate going to go? It's like, it's a very tough position to be in that you're in right now. It's like, it's like, just like I always said, like 2020 was just such a bad timing for a global pandemic to come around and shut the entire economy down because like everybody's trying to get elected so they will do whatever to get as much done as that's why i think we pumped so much money into it and you had so much social duress of just everybody fighting between the the social medias the the news articles the everything it's like you just don't know what uh is going to come of it but now coming into it again now it's like well now we have high inflation we have the stock market falling we have stupid high real estate prices people aren't being able to find you have a lot of people that are uh pent up and just getting angry we have the COVID thing still not being like handled and being like disappearing so now you have that this election's coming around again so like they're going to use that as fuel to irritate the lower middle class of voter bases to try to gain votes so it's going to be very interesting of like what this political climate is going to happen and uh with today's society of like 
news is immediate and nobody gives a damn about fact checking anything it's like i read the headlines put it out because that, that just gets people the clicks the yeah. digital advertising to my site to click on so we can sell more ads and, and like that's going to be it's going to so, be very difficult for this year tommy here talks about uh ai and everything and that's one thing that i'm thinking is with all these places all these companies and jobs being affected especially in the lower income brackets we're going to see a lot more automation Right. We're going to be seeing, I think, a lot more systemizing, being able to use technology, robots, machines to replace more and more people. Like, I, how do you guys see that playing out over the next year or so? Yes. I don't know if you guys heard the other day when President Biden had his hot mic incident where he was cussing out one of the reporters. Yeah. Right before that, he on his hot mic incident, he made a comment, something to the effect of inflation is good. We're going to have more inflation. So what that means as we're saying that they need to get it into check because there is driving a, a greater wealth gap but at the same point in time government is incentivized by reducing the value of the dollar by reducing the debt obligations that it has and it can't raise interest rates too much because we have such a high debt burden so i think that this is where uh free markets and capitalism is going to step in to fill those gaps with artificial intelligence we're going to contract out to machines and computers well because we that's what yeah and technology ai stuff is a deflate massive deflationary pressure mm -hmm. and and that's one thing they're trying to fight towards like we have to have inflation because we have these debt burdens but now you have technological advancements that are driving prices down mm -hmm. there's like we can't have that happen we need to be able to expand the money supply to pay off our debts and stuff like that so that's going to be a very interesting piece i think is one reason why they haven't been able to get inflation like they've wanted since basically 2008 and like okay this time around they finally got it by just pumping it just ungodly amounts of money 40% and, of the money and then like, like increasing money supply and increase and decreasing services like that was really the only way they could do it is like people are going to stop buying and stop buying services or change to what they're going to do and then we increase massive amounts of money supply and create supply chain issues and there goes the inflation so it's like they finally got it um so what is going to happen with it? I, I don't know. But like the AI, I think it is for sure that stuff's not going back. And especially when you see um, like, especially like your service place at McDonald's, we've been talking about that for years of the automation of like, I'm not paying you 15, 17, 20 bucks an hour to make a hamburger. Like I can, I can do a machine that makes a hamburger, flips burgers, does it all, doesn't miss a day at work, doesn't call in sick, doesn't. Uh, have all these like rights around it and it's like mm -hmm. i can hire a tenth of the staff just to really kind of just monitor the machines to fix things versus flipping the hamburgers they're, taking they're the gonna come stuff. out with a law that you gotta have a certain amount of human kappa human i wouldn't put it past people like if it, if, if it came <laughs> down to it like i could see them saying like hey you can't i mean that's what the stuff's designed to do is to keep people employed to keep the economy expanding like right. there's like free market tries to do it and if they see it being a detriment to the overall society they will step in and do some so, regulation to try to make it the other way to get you guys feedback on this like where i think the solution is i know a lot of this may sound uh grim and, and scary to a lot of people like and what the hell do i do that's really the question you need to be asking yourself is, all right, what can I do with this coming down the line? You need to learn new skills. You need to get re-educated. And I don't mean go to college. You know, I mean, get re-educated on shit that actually matters. You know what I mean? Get re-educated on things that can that's actually in demand. And a lot of it doesn't require a college degree. You know, it's simple marketing, social media, uh, a 
bunch of things that are going on right now. AI, you know, fixing shit. I mean, shit. Just, like, I mean right now, even just the trades yeah. in general. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, just like the, the, when I say trades, I'm talking about uh, specialized trades, HVAC, plumbing, um, mechanical, electrical, all of that stuff, especially in the big commercial space. It's like okay. there's a, and then the average construction worker is like 60 years old now. And like nobody wants to do that job. Like, what do you think that's going to do over the next 10 years of those prices? Yeah. Like they're going to drastically go up. So like the stuff like that, and like the Votex school is like, that's more of an, it's, it's education, but it's more of an applied education of like, hey, this is exactly. for a specific trade, mechanics, another thing for engines and stuff like that. Like those, like, I mean, what was it like? Probably, I don't know, ten years ago. Like, yeah, it was easy to change your oil. Or twenty years ago, yeah, anybody could do it. But nowadays, you look at your oil and you're like, "Holy shit! I got to take off all this stuff. I got to do all these things. I have all these sensors attached to it." Yep. Like, never mind. I'm gonna send, take it to the mechanic. You shop. need a special uh, lug nut to be able yeah, to take you, it off. You open you need... the hood and it's like I just see giant sheet of plastic. I'm like. I know what an alternator looks like, but I can't even see it anymore. Like it's under all this other stuff compacted. And and a lot of those trades and stuff like that, they don't require four years. No, they're like they don't require hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? Like I mean, it's 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 something you should be looking into. And if you can get a real world education in something that Mm -hmm. the market demands, there's huge opportunity right now. Um, If you can teach yourself how to do these these skills either start your business or become a tradesman trades person whatever whatever that looks like um that there's massive opportunity and then also getting back to the basics of answering your phone providing you know a good clean workspace providing a good product like there's ample amount good of opportunity to make a lot of money i don't want to get stuck in these robo machines like i just need to talk to somebody please uh, yeah you end up calling something and i don't even hear the options i'm just like zero 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 representative just representative hit it, hit it 20 times until it <laughs> like, finally goes through yeah. i don't want to hear your options because you're not gonna help me so but i mean even to that point like eh, we have a, a gentleman that's going to be starting to work with us soon that he's essentially kind of working for free because he wants to learn the trade yes he's not going to be working for free free we're going to be paying him for the deals and stuff like that but it's still he is looking to learn something that can make him money and make him useful as the economy shifts and like learning how to invest in real estate learning how to find uh, good properties for investors learning how to do all those is a great skill to have if you obviously like the trade, right? If you like real estate, you like all this, it's a great skill to have. It's a great knowledge to have because it's just something that's like, people are always going to need a roof over their head. Like they're always yeah. going to need a place to live. Yeah. So that that's not going to be going anywhere. But I think people need to really spend the time to get educated, understand what's coming, and try to prepare yourself as best as possible and stop complaining about you know, the good old days and how screwed up everything is and they need to stop this. Well, they, like societies don't go backwards in yeah. thing, things like that. It's like, yeah. yes, do we have regressions? Do we have deregulation? Do we have those things? But like, they don't just go back like, you know what? Social media is a bad idea. Let's just not do it anymore. Not going to go away. Not going to happen. And so there's a lot of those things like, oh, the good old days of, of this happening. It's like they're not going to start building cars the way they used to build cars. And it's like it's like you have to be able to move with the times and grow with them and adapt and understand what's going to happen. I mean, all the stuff we just talked about, like different strategies of real estate. What do we think is going to happen? It's like why you need to tune into Coffee with the Johns and uh, the Investor's Journey podcast because we talk about those things of like in real estate – 
as full-time real estate investment professionals, I'm a, a licensed broker. Like we're in real estate. We know what's going on. We pay attention to these things. If you're on the outside and just kind of part-time in real estate, like you need to be listening to experts and doing things and educating yourself to stay on top of that stuff. And it's not so, an overnight shift. These are just right. things that you need to change in your day-to-day. Mm-hmm. Just adapt yeah. to the environment as they change. Like your strategy might change. You, if you buy five rental homes this year, you, your strategy might change on each one of them to adapt to what the new reality is. Yep. Yeah. So yeah. it's it's not like this where you have to regress and come out as a whole new person. Like just just change in the day to day as the environment does, and you you can keep pace. It's not overwhelming. You just need to stay focused on it. And going back to the the book I mentioned earlier of Think Again, like it's okay to have a plan and then pivot from that plan. Like don't feel that because you said, well, I'm buying five homes this year and you bought two that you're like, man, I failed because of this, or I got to get five. It doesn't even matter if they make sense or not. I just got to buy those five homes. Cause that was yeah. the, no stop. And like you're saying, reassess after every single one reassess Did this work Did that work. How can I make it better? Do I really want five? Maybe I want two. Right. So it's like, you got to be willing to just stop and look and analyze what is it that you're doing. And I think that whole chasing the shiny penny and, and rushing into things without thinking it through is where we're seeing a lot of people freaking out about, you know, these wholesale regulations and everything that's coming down the line. I'm not sure if you heard about it, but uh, there's this, uh, you know, uh, YouTube guru guy, Jerry Norton, and he's been beating the loudest drum that he wants to start an organization for wholesalers so we can be represented, right? So I'm like, so you're bringing in regulation for wholesalers at this point. So I was like, yeah, that's genius. And you hear people like getting really worried, wholesalers getting, oh my God, these regulations, what are we going to do? It's like, if you educate yourself, this isn't a problem. Like in the places that they've banned wholesaling, you can still wholesale. Nobody can stop you from getting a property under contract. Because you might they don't- that you now have to buy it. Yeah. You have to be the owner. Yeah. Like you're, the assignment of contract pieces don't exist anymore. It's like my worry is like mm-hmm. they do things and pass things like you cannot buy and resell a property within 90 days. Right. I mean, I, I think you'd hit massive regulations and lawsuits if you try to do that against personal property. Like you actually physically own the property yep. um, and you saying you can't sell it to somebody because I mean, you already have that for FHA stuff. I could see that doing via loan issues, but I don't see they'll be able to buy and resell somebody cash uh, immediately. So that's still quote unquote wholesaling, but you just have to be the owner. I mean, your big wholesale groups, we call them like. They're not signing contracts. They're closing it and then reselling it and incurring that transactional cost. Because I think they even see that so they don't care. Like they say, oh, we need to stop these big wholesale. You won't because they're buying from, they're buying it and they're trying to reselling it cash. Yeah. It's like that, that's, they're not wholesaling in the quote unquote, like true definition of the standard in my mind. Like a wholesaling is somebody that assigns a contract and doesn't ever take property. They just own an interest in a contract. Yeah. I could see that going away, but I don't see you could ever regulate out buying it and turn around and reselling it for higher prices to somebody else with the brought cash yeah, to the table. Now, now you just got to get more resourceful, uh, you know, finding better private money lenders, finding people that can help you fund these deals for a longer period of time. If it, if it is longer than 90 days, because one of those things, it's not going to be that, you know, this happens. And then all of a sudden, you know, every, there's no more real estate investors ever. No, the market is going to adapt. Investors are going to adapt and there's always going to be a way. There's always going to be a way to make it work. You know, and that's where you got to think about more creatively of like, all right, everything that's happening, all of this stuff, like what's a, what's something that's working and how can I get in there 
with somebody, go intern for somebody, go work with somebody. You know, even if they're not paying what I need, I'll get a side job. I'll get two side jobs just so I can learn the trade. So I'm good a year from now, two years from now, you know? And I think that delayed gratification is just a massive problem. And that forces you to refine your systems, your processes, your, your thoughts, your business goals. You really have to become a better investor to make that happen. So, yeah, I completely agree with that. Um, who's the author of think again, Adam, Adam Grant. Grant. Yep. Um, yeah, that book, I, I mean, we've been reading it and part of a little book mastermind that we have. And it's just been all of that. Just change your mindset. Like even if you believe this to be true and somebody else thinks of something else, it's like, ask yourself, well, could that be true too? Could I shift my mindset? Could I think about or look at this in a different way that, you know, maybe they're right. You know, maybe I should do this or do that. So I think just not shutting yourself off to, you know, it's my way or the highway uh, is going to set you up for much greater success. And Adam Grant's a uh, little plug here, but he has a great Instagram page as well that he puts a lot of tidbits mm. of knowledge out. He has different things every day that really force you to sit down and rethink and uh, for some different perspectives. So I'd, I'd recommend that. So w one of the things as we start wrapping up that I wanted to ask you is as somebody that has a full-time job and has had the level of success that you had in real estate, how have you been able to find these real estate opportunities, these deals and everything? Because that's one thing that everybody always complains about and struggles with when they have a full-time job is how do you find the deals? They don't know how to find the deals. What was it that you did that has given you the opportunity of doing all of these transactions? Well, as a common theme here, it's not just one thing. It's keeping options open. We, we've done a couple of things. We've really tried to figure out what we can do by ourselves. What are our strengths and what are our weaknesses? Uh, just as a couple that are trying to do it ourselves. So we found strength in finding and being able to well, to purchase good cash flowing short-term rentals, to uh, find these the, the assisted living homes that we did. But also more importantly, is we try to find people like yourselves that counter our strengths, right. that, um, that we can provide value to them, they can provide value to us, and as a team, we're stronger. So we've really focused on, on building up, just building up, keeping and maintaining relationships as well. Right. Um, people that, that are in, that are actively involved to find the good deals, bring them to you in, in providing value to the overall, you know, the, 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 some, the, how does that go? The, the, some of the, the, some of the parts is better than the individual. Right. So we're able, we're really focused on that as well. Yeah. And I, and I think that's a, you know, it's something that we always preach about is your network. You need yep. a powerful and good network. You need to build relationships, nurture those relationships, right? I mean, we wholesale to you, the first house in 2017, right? And we kept that relationship with you. We we make sure that we stay friends. We stay, you know, working together, doing all that because look how many deals we've done since because of that relationship, right? And with that, it's been everything else. And the same for you. You've been able to acquire all those deals because of your relationship with us, right? And with other investors and with other realtors and other professionals in the, in the trade that you've developed those relationships. Yeah, and especially now that we don't live here anymore and this is a remote location for us, we become more right. dependent on those good quality people that answer their phone, that take pride in their work, that are honest. And just, just f taking the time to find those people and build those relationships is wholly important. It is tough, though. It's, it's very tough it uh, yeah. to find stuff. And I mean, it's it's... 
don't go jump both feet in with somebody like hardcore and like bet everything on it. It's like, it's, it's the same thing we talk about. Like the patience is something you really gotta, you really gotta build. And, and I think if you're starting off and this is your first year, I think what you need to focus on is not making money is learning. You need to focus on learning as much as possible. Learn everything that you can absorb as much as you can, because the more you learn, the more you're gonna, better off you're going to be in the years coming. And that was one thing that I, when I started, that's how I started. I started working for somebody pretty much like chasing down leads and doing all this. They would pay me like a commission. And I didn't care about the commission. What I cared about was I asked a bunch of questions about everything, every scenario, every single, you know, uh, negotiation, title thing, contracts, everything. I asked so many questions that a year later I was doing it on my own. I didn't need to work with them anymore. You understand? Like it was something that I was able to learn so much that, and since then I've been doing this for six plus years now and we keep getting bigger every single year. Cause we're always focused on learning versus, you know, oh, I got to make that money. So one of the things that I, I do, I want to touch on, on with you, Andrew, is that I, I admire how you keep saying we, 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 and your wife is a big part of your investing. You guys are in this as a partnership, as a team, how did that come about? Because there's a lot of people that's always, I've always seen one or the other. Very rarely do I see the couple agree and be as in-depth as uh, we've seen Katrina be with real estate and everything that she's taken uh, interest in. Yeah, well, much like our external partnerships within our marriage, there's an internal partnership as well. And we each have strengths and weaknesses within the relationship as well. And uh, some people may not, may not agree with this, but if you're married and you're investing in real estate, it is a partnership. Like mm -hmm. you both have to be on board. Not one of you can be both feet in and the other one's afraid or not wanting to do it. Um, so we've, we've kept that paramount. And even though I tend to be the one that implements the day-to-day -day stuff, we always sit down and we talk strategy because she's always that person that's, you know, firing off. Well, what about this? What about this? Like, that's a terrible idea, Andrew. And, um, you know, like, I need to hear yeah. that. Because I would I would get into these things otherwise that maybe wouldn't be the best of ideas. So I really use that as a sounding board. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just to bounce ideas off of it. And we'll just talk about it over a casual dinner. Like it's nothing formal. Right, right. You know, maybe once or twice a year but, we'll sit down and try to come up with goals or intentions. Yeah. But um, it's just a day-to-day -day thing that we – and now we've been doing this together. We've had so many of these conversations that – that they take less time because mm -hmm. we're kind of on the same page. We know what the other will not agree with, but what, what the, the pitfalls of, of each other's ideas are. And the and, fact that she's taking an interest and in also learning and knowing it, I mean, it helps tremendously as well. Yeah, certainly. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I admire that. I think that, you know, that's definitely been, uh, Katrina's definitely the key to your success. Um, <laughs> <Agreed>. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I think, uh, I think that's a very good, you know, partnership to have, especially because this business, as we know, it's extremely stressful. You know, there's a lot of things going on with it that if you have to go home and you don't have that support at home that you can just like kind of let go of, you know, let them know all the problems, let them know all this, and they can provide some constructive criticism or feedback on it because they care. Like, I mean, if you can't have that, it's, you end up being so alone in this space. But it's so beneficial as well. Like we've, we've decided a long time ago that we were just going to live on one income and save the other for real estate investing. And I, uh, I couldn't do that by myself. She couldn't do that by, right? by herself, but together, like we're able to live a good life, save money and invest and do it wisely. Very good. Any parting thoughts or words, anything that you guys wanted to hit? Hit that like button. <laughs> <laughs>
hit that like button. <laughs> <laughs> so I hope everybody enjoyed our first episode of season three, Coffee with the Johns. We will not be coming back every single Friday morning, but we will be doing it a few times a month. We're just going to see based on the news and our availability. You know, you'll be getting a notification if you join our text community at 210-794-9898. You'll get notified every time that we're getting ready to go live. So, you know, we can bring you the freshest information, strategies, everything that we're doing. Uh, But with that being said... Andrew, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's been a great pleasure. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. And uh, John, pleasure as always. And we'll catch you guys on the next one.